Our scripture reading today comes from selected passages from Joshua chapters 3, 4, and 5. As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of the harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were staying beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land, and there was no longer any manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is God's word. You may now be seated. Well, if you have your Bibles... Grab them, open them, turn them on. Uh, We're covering, as you probably noticed, a larger chunk of scripture than we would normally, than would normally be the practice. Uh, And it's a challenge, I think, in an Old Testament narrative to understand and try and figure out which passages fit together, which belong together. And so uh, I... I believe that this division of, of 3.1 to 5.12, I see this as one coherent section because it's one, there's one theme going throughout it and that theme is the covenant. You see the theme of the covenant from 3.1 all the way to 5.12, so that's why I've chosen to, to group uh, these chapters together the way that I have. The Israelites, as you know, they were in a covenant relationship with God and God in our passage, is about to give them a major piece of the blessing of being in a covenant with him in the form of the promised land. And our God knows that Israel, uh, they have some trouble uh, remaining faithful to the covenant that they've made with God. He knows that they often forget that they need reminders. So God graciously, over and over again, through the course of the Old Testament, he gives them these reminders. Reminders not just that you're in a covenant, but reminders of who exactly they're in a covenant with. And this is exactly what we have going on in this passage. As the Israelites enter into the promised land. God is preparing them. He's preparing their hearts. He's preparing their resolve, their minds to enter into this promised land by reminding them not just that they're in a covenant, but who it is that they're in a covenant with. And I think it's fair to say as a general rule, uh, the better prepared we are for something, A, the more we're gonna enjoy it, 
and B, the better we're going to be at it. So I think three or four weeks ago now, I had the opportunity to go on a fifth grade field trip to Yorktown. And we went and saw the, the field where the Battle of Yorktown happened. This was the decisive battle in the Revolutionary War that, that pretty much ensured that we were going to be our own nation. And so I knew what had happened there. I was excited to see it. And we got to this field. And you know what I saw? A field. <laughs> I mean, there were some flags over there and some hills over there, but largely... I couldn't appreciate what all had transpired there because I had not been fully prepared to go and see that field. But then uh, a park historian joined us and explained what those flags meant, where the Americans were, where the, the British were, what those hills were, what kind of cannons they were using, where they were, how exactly George Washington had surprised General Cornwallis, all culminating in us getting our own country. Once I was prepared, I enjoyed it a lot more, and I was impacted in a much more significant way. So in a similar way, God knows that the Israelites need to be prepared. And he's giving them three very specific things that he wants, he wants them to do so that they can be prepared, not just to cross into the promised land, but to do everything that's required once they're in the promised land and remain faithful to the God who they have covenanted with. And it would be a good idea for us all to listen very carefully because the same three things are going to be true for all of us. We are in a covenant with the same God who is leading us into an even better promised land. And the three things that he says to the Israelites are 100% true of us today. So what are those three things? God is preparing Israel by telling them to trust in his presence to remember his goodness, and to accept his gifts. So first, let's look at trusting his presence. So it's really clear, this is, this is chapter 3, right off the bat, that God wants them to be aware of and trust in his presence. We can see this in verses 7 and 10 very, very clearly. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with, jo- with Moses, so I will be with you. I will be with you. And Joshua said, here is how you, Israelites, shall know that the living God is among you. So God is wanting to communicate to Joshua and to his people, you're not going alone, I'm with you. You will have my presence. So how is it exactly that God's going to do this? I was trying to think this week about what it would be like to receive a gift, to receive a blessing that you had anticipated for about a half a millennia. I mean, because the promise of the land, it goes back before Egypt, all the way back to Abraham for about a half a millennia. These Israelites had anticipated this land. And I know we anticipate lots of things. We anticipate birthdays, Christmas, graduation, marriage, kids, retirement. But those things pale in comparison to the anticipation that had existed for about 500 years that they would get this land. I mean, really, the only thing that we have to compare it to in our context is the return of Jesus. There's nothing that we anticipate the way that we 
anticipate the return of Jesus. And that would have been the closest thing, I think, that we can get to understanding the anticipation that they have had. And imagine how they might feel actually standing on the other side of the river from this promised land. So here they are. Joshua says, today is the day. And here's the plan. The priests are going to bring the ark. We're all going to watch. They're going to walk into the water. And as soon as their feet enter the Jordan River, the whole thing's going to dry up. That's the plan. And it's helpful to understand something about the Ark of the Covenant. You, You may could glean this, I guess, from Indiana Jones, but that's not the best source to go to. The Bible clearly states over and over and over again that the ark is God's very presence dwelling with them. So if God wants to say trust in my presence, if he wants to communicate something about the power of his presence, it makes a lot of sense that he's going to use the ark. And lest we think for a moment that that's just coincidental, I challenge you to count the number of times the ark is mentioned in our passage. All right, I came up with 20. And that includes pronouns, and I know the pronouns vary in translation, but about 20 times the word ark pops up, or its equivalent pronoun. Do you think we're supposed to pay attention to the fact that the ark went first? Yes. God has wanted to communicate something very clearly about his presence, and that it's that presence that's going to do this thing. So the suspense is building as we're reading in chapter 3. I have to imagine that more than a few people were wondering, is this really going to happen? I mean, is this water really just going to dry up? Uh, I wonder if maybe one of the priests holding the ark is wondering, you know, when my feet get in there, is this really going to dry up? And so the suspense is built. And then we have this kind of funny parenthetical in, uh, in verse 15. The author writes, after the suspense has already been built, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Which is his way of saying, oh, by the way, the river is raging right now. (laughs) I mean, this would have been a very difficult time and place to cross this river. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen the Jordan River. I've never seen it. But from from what I read, we probably shouldn't imagine like a calm winter St. John's River. That's not what they would have been looking at. The Jordan River in calm seasons, which it wasn't, but in calm seasons its banks would have been full of jungle. So just the banks surrounding the river had brush that were so, was so thick, it was almost impassable in and of itself. So then you think about the river being overflowing, which is probably somewhere between 200 yards and a mile wide. And you realize the, what's underneath the water isn't just nice sand, it's jungle. And then you take into consideration the fact that in this place, if it's anything like what it is today, and most people believe that it is, at this location, the the river drops 40 feet per mile. So not only would it have been very full, it would have been rushing. I mean, God really seemed to pick literally the worst place to pass at the worst time of the year. But if you read the Bible over and over again, we see that this is what God likes to do. God likes to do things, humanly speaking, in the worst way. God likes to have the deck stacked against him because that is where he gets the most glory. You know, he's wanting to make a statement about his presence. So let's go. Let's not cross a creek. Let's make this river wide, dangerous, and rapid. 
And that's exactly what he's done. And you know, to me, I think about men and women I've known who, who have a deep sense of this, this tendency of God. That God wants the deck to be stacked against him because he wants his glory to be seen in a more significant way. So Joshua obviously was one of these people. But it makes me think of a, a story I heard a few years ago about a man named Bill Bright. Many of you know Bill Bright. He used to live here in Orlando. He was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And there was, a, the, so the, as the story got to me, there was a plan that all the higher-ups in Campus Crusade had, and the plan was not coming about the way that they envisioned it coming about. <laughs> the truth was, this plan was totally falling apart at the seams. And so somebody looked at Dr. Bright, and they said, well, what do you think? And he said, well, now it's just going to be all the more fun to see how God does this. Because he had the sense, it wasn't falling apart. God just wanted to reveal his glory in a different way. And God certainly blessed the ministry of that man. So the priests get to the edge of the river. And yes, it immediately dries up. All of Israel is watching probably from the hills surrounding the banks of the river. And, you know, as I read this week, it was really kind of comical, I think, for all the people who went out of their way to say, no, 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 this was not a miraculous event. <laughs> you know, they say, we, ha- we have three documented cases of an earthquake that makes the Jordan River stop. So this really isn't, isn't miraculous here. That's just what happened. To which I think, all right, well, all right, maybe, let's say God did use a secondary cause like an earthquake at exactly the time that the toes of the priests went into the river. How is that not still miraculous? So I I don't know whether there's an earthquake or not. I don't think it matters in the very least. But I do know that all the Israelites watching this, this would have brought back memories of the stories of the parting of the Red Sea. They would have known and felt deeply that surely God is here. Surely his presence is with us. And they would have been deeply encouraged by that. And, you know, in this moment, we get to see Israel do it right. (laughs) You know, a lot of times we look and Israel's not doing right. God says here, follow me in this direction and Israel does it. But other times, God says, follow me, and Israel doesn't do it. Or God doesn't say anything, and they go a direction, thinking that's what they should do, or wanting, going the direction they want to go. But here we see God going first and Israel following. And I think that we can learn a lot from that. (laughs) My wiring, personally, is shoot first, aim later. (laughs) So it's, it's takes a lot of discipline for me to be quiet and wait and seek the Lord and then follow him. And I imagine there are others in this room. You need like a spiritual jump start from God himself to do anything to follow him. We're all wired differently. But all of us can take a cue from Israel here. Who waited on the Lord, trusted the Lord, and followed the Lord through his presence. So what does it mean then for us? What does it mean for us as New Testament believers? We don't have the ark in front of us. What does it mean for us to trust in the presence of the Lord? And I think this is precisely what Paul had in mind when he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
we have something better than the ark. We have God's presence not dwelling in a box over there somewhere. We have God's presence dwelling inside of us at all times. So how is it that we are filled with the Spirit? How is it that we experience His presence to the fullest and are guided and encouraged and led? Well, the answer is simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's simple. We turn from our sin and we run to Jesus. Every single day, we confess our sin and we run to Jesus. I so appreciate that Matt had a time of confession because the following song is that much more sweet when we turn from our sin and we run to Jesus. As we do that, we are filled with the presence of God and it is every bit as clear for us what it is that we're to do and we have every bit of encouragement to do it as if we were looking at the ark and watching the waters dry up. So Israel is to first trust in his presence and then secondly in chapter four, we see that Israel is also to remember his goodness. So there's a commentator I really love reading in the Old Testament. His name is Dale Ralph Davis. Most people call him Ralph Davis. Um, Incidentally, I remember being in a hermeneutics class at RTS, Scott Swain, Dr. Swain, was uh, was my professor. And he was walking us through uh, the library and trying to help us know how to build a, a theological library of commentaries. And he'd get to all of these great long commentaries and he would always have the same refrain. It takes time. You do one at a time, no rush. And we got to Ralph Davis's series and he said, yeah, just put that on a credit card. <laughs> you're going you're, you're gonna to need it. But Dale Ralph Davis this week, He said, the greatest enemy of faith may be forgetfulness. The greatest enemy of faith may be forgetfulness. Because God can take care of us over and over and over again. But the minute things get tough, we have this propensity to wonder if if he has any well-meaning intentions towards us at all. Will he carry us through? We so easily forget. I have a a friend who has a grown son who is on the autism spectrum. And he decided he wanted to take his son uh, on a cruise, just the two of them, out of Canaveral. And he wanted to do that because vacations are hard when when you have a son on on the autism spectrum. And his his plan was to go on this cruise and whatever his son wanted to do, they were going to do. If, if his son wanted to dance, they were going to dance. If he wanted to swim, they were going to swim. If he wanted to eat, they were going to eat. Whatever it was he wanted to do, they were going to do. And for three days, they had as close to the perfect vacation as they could have imagined. And then as they were coming back into port, his son accidentally locked himself in the cabin bathroom. So if you know anything about autism, this creates a ton of anxiety. This is, this is one of those worst case scenarios. And my friend for 15 minutes is trying to walk him through how do you unlock this door, trying to walk him through a lock that he didn't really know well himself from the other side of the door. And then finally they were successful. They got him out and his son looked at him after three great days of vacation and said, you never do anything for me. And my friend, who is one of the wisest people I have ever known on this earth, he said, in that moment, I got to see how quickly I forget all the good that God does for me. He said, the truth is, 
all of us have a form of spiritual autism and we are prone to talk to God in exactly the same way. And God knows this. So he creates in his grace ways for us to remember his goodness. And what we see in chapter four is exactly one of those ways. He commands Israel to take 12 stones representing the 12 tribes and make a monument, a memorial so significant that nobody's ever going to forget what happened here. And I will say there's a little confusion in chapter four because of verse nine. And so there's some, if you just read it, you might wonder, are there two memorials? Are there one memorial? Clearly there's this memorial beside the Jordan. But then it seems from verse nine, it says, uh, the 12 stones were in the midst of the Jordan. You know, you can wonder, are there, are there two memorials? Nobody knows for sure. My opinion is that there's one memorial. Uh, my opinion is this because the whole narrative tends to read like we're, we're talking about one memorial. It doesn't read like we're shifting between memorials. I also don't know how a memorial in the middle of the river accomplishes what it is that God's wanting to accomplish through the memorial. You can't see it to, to remember it. I guess most of the most of the year at least. Um, and then third, what I think is going on is simply a translation issue. When you look at verse nine, I think what verse nine is trying to communicate is that the stones on the memorial came from the midst of the Jordan. That's what I think is being communicated. I wouldn't want anybody to get tripped up there because whether we're talking about one memorial or two, It doesn't change what God is wanting to do through these memorials. He says really clearly in this chapter, there are three purposes for this memorial. The first we see in verse six is so so that it will be a sign among you. You who have seen these events transpire. You who will be so quickly, who will so quickly forget. Because right now, even though the, the promised land is assured, It's not secured. These Israelites, they have a long way to go and he knows they're gonna have to remember. They're gonna have to be reminded of the things that God did to bring them into this this promised land. I mean, I think the practice of a memorial is a pretty familiar one to most of us. I mean, you go almost anywhere in this country and we see memorials of various kinds wanting us to remember great events that happened. I mean, you can, there are memorials probably in almost every city commemorating the cost that went into our freedom, marking the people who have sacrificed in the Revolutionary War, in the Civil War, in the World Wars. I mean, I saw a few of these memorials on that fifth grade trip and I was moved by them, by them. And God is saying he wants a memorial to be established that will transcend all the nations that will communicate something about his glory and his goodness. So he has these stones erected. Do you have memorials in your life? Do you have things in the rhythms of your life to be able to remind you of God's goodness? Because I think this is something that we can learn from this text. We, we sing it all often. I mean, if you... If you know what the word Ebenezer means, you know, we sing here, I raise my Ebenezer. I'm not a very good singer. Hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. 
We're singing about the reminders, the memorials, the Ebenezers that we have constructed in our life to remind us that God is faithful and he is good and he is true. And I will confess to you that this isn't something that my family's all that good at. So I was convicted and motivated this week to kind of think about how can the Davis family begin to create memorials in in our life. And so here's our, our small stab at it this week. We, uh, we're going to have a bowl on our table. And over the course of the summer, as often as we can think about it, we're going to write the ways that God blesses our family over the course of the summer. And at the end of the summer, we're going to have a big fun dinner where we pull them out and we read them. I, I think the memorials are going to look different in all of our lives, but all of us need them. So what are your memorials? The things that remind you of the events that you've already seen God do. That's the first goal, the first purpose in the memorials. The second purpose isn't for you who have seen the events, but for future generations. Look at verses six and seven. That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. I had a dear friend who was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, and he spent a lot of time after that diagnosis documenting God's goodness and faithfulness in his life because he wanted to make sure his children and his grandchildren and who knows even after that would be able to hear of the God of God's goodness he was making a memorial for future generations and I remember he would often quote Hebrews 11 talks about Abel through his faith though he had died he still speaks And he knew, my friend knew, that the only way he could continue to speak to future generations is if there were memorials of sorts. And so he began to create them. And he is still speaking to his children and his grandchildren. We see the need for memorials all around us. Because if there is a picture out there of how fast a society can forget about God and lose its faith. Better than America, I don't know what it is. I mean, in just two generations, look at how things have changed. So what are the ways that we are creating memorials and everything, every aspect of our lives to communicate to future generations, to those who would, who would precede us, whether biological or spiritual disciples? What are we doing to speak to them long after we're gone? And then lastly, the third purpose in these memorials, it wasn't to testify to the Israelites at all. It was to testify something about God to the whole world. Look at verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. God wants everyone to fear him. And and everyone in this story actually does fear him. Some fear him in awe and reverence and others fear him in terror, but everyone fears him because he is so great and so powerful and so grand 
that we can't interact with him and not experience some kind of fear, whether awe or terror. And he wants that to be communicated to the world. And in some way, the memorial that he's erecting does that. It communicates to everybody, Israelite and not, that he is the one true God. So are we doing that? You know, through our lives, this building, our homes, whatever it is that we have, are we communicating something to the lost world about the grandness and the goodness of our God? Those are the three purposes. But before I move on, I want to point out something that is so important to see here. It's easily missed if we don't know to look for it. In verse 19, did you notice when this is happening? Okay, when this is happening is a huge deal. I think all the Israelites would have recognized when it is that they're crossing the Jordan. It's the 10th day of the first month. And this would have been very important because it was the same month, if not the same day, that the Israelites celebrated their, the inauguration of their wandering through Passover. So on the same month, and, and there's a strong argument that could be even for the same day that these Israelites entered the wandering, they ceased to wander. That's a really cool thing. I mean, it, we notice, we notice when things transpire on the same day. If you've seen the movie Independence Day where Will Smith saves the world from aliens... Everything that's happening has more significance because of the day it's happening on. July 4th. That's why it's called Independence Day. My son Collins, he, uh, he was named after my wife's great uncle Collins. And he died on my son Collins' first birthday. We took notice. It's eerie when things happen on the same, the same day, the same season, the same month. And I think that's exactly what God is wanting to do here. He's wanting to communicate to them. You came into this wandering at a certain time and you're leaving this wandering at at the same time because that would have been another type of memorial, another type of reminder of the goodness of God who is actually in control of all these events. He is leading you into the promised land and he's gonna take care of you every step of the way after that. So we trust in the goodness of God, we trust in his presence. And then thirdly, we accept his gifts. We accept his gifts. So what gifts are the Israelites accepting? They're accepting the blessings of being in a covenant relationship with him. And in every area of our life, you can be given a gift, but it's not truly yours unless you accept it. I mean, this is true of Christmas presents and birthday presents and anniversary presents. It's not yours unless you accept it. It's even true in the legal world. There is a, a case that went all the way to the, the Supreme Court where a man named George Wilson, who had been, um, been sentenced to death, received a presidential pardon from then-President Andrew Jackson. And Mr. Wilson refused the pardon. And so it went all the way to the Supreme Court. What do we do? He doesn't want it. And the Supreme Court 
decided that if the gift is not received, it is invalid. And so in every area of our life, we have to accept a gift for it to work. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. Now, I want to very clearly say that I think any, anyone whose eyes and hearts are opened by the power of the Holy Spirit is going to receive the gift. But it doesn't change the fact that we still have to receive the gift. So what gifts were specifically the Israelites accepting? We see three. The first gift they accept is the sign of the covenant in the form of circumcision. The sign of the covenant. And if you were, you know, if you were reading along with us earlier, you, you probably saw that the text says they are to be, uh, this, this mark is to be given a second time, which could raise some eyebrows. Can you be circumcised twice? The answer is no. That's not what God is wanting to communicate here. Um, probably. And scripture isn't super clear about this, but in all likelihood, you had this entire younger generation that just wasn't circumcised during their wandering. You have these people who didn't have the mark of, of God. And there is reason to believe that, that maybe God had removed this mark in some way to communicate his displeasure about their disobedience while they wandered. But in any case, they did not have the mark. Now God was giving them the blessing of being able to have the mark of his chosen people once again. And he's communicating to them in this mark that a measure of pleasure and approval to these people. And in the same way, we have both the duty and the honor and the privilege to receive the mark of the covenant today as New Testament believers in the form of baptism. Because when we are baptized, we're communicating to the world that I am no longer an enemy, but a son. I have been given all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ himself. And just as Jesus was dead, buried, and rose again, so we, because we, our hope is only in him, are buried in a coffin of water, raised to walk in newness of life, having the promise that we will be resurrected in the same way that Jesus was. What an honor it is to have the mark of God's people. The second thing, though, that could strike you as odd about the command to be circumcised is the fact that they're going into war in three days. Okay, not the most strategic decision by Joshua. If you're going to be, if you, all your men are going to go into war in three days' time. And you may remember in Genesis 34, Jacob's daughter... Dinah, she was seized and violated by Shechem and Jacob went to Shechem to get his daughter back. Shechem said, no, I love her. I want to marry her. And Jacob said, all right, the only way you can do that is if every male in your village is circumcised. And I have to imagine there's a fair amount of disdain in that village for Shechem, but that's what they did. They agreed. But all of this was a trick on the part of Jacob because he just wanted to get to that three-day mark when the soreness is at its peak and he was going to invade and he was going to take his daughter back. So we have every reason to believe that on that third day, it would not be optimal fighting time. <laughs> but again, 
it gives God all the more glory. Because they're also giving, getting rid of their strategic advantage. <laughs> I mean, there's, their main strategic advantage is surprise. And when they're just sitting out there on this side of the Jordan for three days, they lose that as well. But this is how God deals with his people. And they know it, so they accept the gift. Because it is an honor to, re- to receive the gift, and he is glorified through it. Second gift they, they accept is the Passover. They celebrate Passover in chapter 5. And when you celebrate Passover, it's a gift because they're remembering when God, as he brought judgment into Egypt, he passed over every house that had the mark of the sign of faith on it. And the mark in that context was the blood of the lamb. And so they were given the gift to remember again God's goodness. And they accepted that gift. And we have a very similar gift and opportunity in the Lord's Supper that we're going to take in just a few moments. An opportunity to remember the goodness of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, whose body was broken for us just as that bread will be broken in our mouths, whose blood was spilled for us just as that juice is poured. The Lord's Supper is a significant gift where we not only remember but in some very mysterious way, Christ is among us and he is using this gift to conform us into his image and to fuel us on the mission that he has called us into. So that's the second thing they receive. And then lastly, so they accept the gift of circumcision, Passover, but then we can't overlook the fact that they're accepting the gift of the promised land. They're accepting it and you can... You can see this by seeing what food it is they used for their Passover meal. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. And the day after Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. They ate of the land. They They were accepting the promised land. And God was, in a way, handing them over to the promised land because he had been providing for their food in the form of manna for years and years and years. And it says in the very next verse that the manna ceased. Because they had the promised land. They were nourished by the promised land. Israel accepted the gifts of God. And so must we. So I want to finish. By saying there are in essence two. Two offers on the table. One for believers. One for unbelievers. Today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ. The offer in front of you. Is to accept the gift of communion, the gift of the Lord's Supper. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ once again. Remember his goodness, trust in his presence until until he takes you home to the much better promised land. And to the unbeliever, you're invited to taste the same gospel by the same God in the same way for the first time. The only thing standing between you and celebrating the Lord's Supper with us is repentance. And this could be the day that that happens. Because all of us, the only thing that stands between us and God is our repentance. It is our hard hearts. But we're standing in front of a dried up Jordan River. And the only question before you is, will you walk? So I want to pray in a moment.
that you will. I want to pray for all of those of you who have been walking with Jesus, whether for one week or decades, that this will be a sweet time, that we get to remember Jesus' goodness, remember the power of God's Holy Spirit, and let it drive us away from our sin and into the open arms of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful, as forgetful as we are, that you over and over and over again remind us of your goodness. You give us your presence. Lord, we don't deserve it, but these are gifts and we want to accept it. And so I pray today that you would set apart this bread and this juice from its ordinary task and that in a very real, physical, and spiritual way, that you would bless us as we remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, your pursuit of us, and the home that while not yet secured, is assured. We thank you that we follow you to a better promised land, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.